Wow, thank you, choir. Thank you, Kay. It's so good to go on vacation knowing that you can leave the church in good hands. What a lead into the communion table, as we're going to see. Uh, what a way to uh, the table today, which in God's providence is really going to consummate the teaching today. If you turn to Romans 8, Romans chapter 8. We come today for the fourth and uh, for the final time to a series that we've been doing uh, on the foundation of our mission, the wellspring of everything, and that is the first line of our mission, that we seek to know and show the enduring truth and love, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. Three weeks ago, I launched this series uh, through uh, Romans 8 by focusing on how this kind of knowing comes uh, from a miracle mindset that can truly be transformational. Then we took two weeks of vacation, and it was so good, again, to know that I was leaving the pulpit in good hands, that we have such depth as a church uh, when it comes to all our staff, from the pulpit to uh, uh, the various other things that our staff do. Uh, I could truly let it go. Julie and I could do that, because of what you're, you heard from the pulpit three weeks ago. Um, two weeks ago, Jim Murphy focused on how, according to Scripture, to know the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ is not just intellectual. It's highly relational. To know God is not just to satisfy some, you know, curiosity about him, but to have intimacy with him. And then last week, Jeff Jeffren focused on how to know the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ doesn't mean just to have preferences uh, or opinions, but to have uh, life-changing convictions, convictions that result in decisions, in actions, even in martyrdom. It's about having convictions that are truly foundational to our lives, which God knows we need these days. We've been seeing that uh, the first line of our mission is rich. It's, it's rich, really, according to Scripture, beyond comprehension. You'll never exhaust what it means to know the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ. According to Scripture, as Jim reminded us of two weeks ago, it's a knowing that surpasses comprehension. This week, we'll wrap it up by pulling it back to Romans 8, where we began this series three weeks ago, back to the miracle mindset that's available to those who have the spirit of Christ in them. That kind of knowing. Because to know the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ is, is not only richly relational, uh, as Jim taught, not only deeply foundational, as Greg taught, but it's highly transformational, as we'll see for the last time today. The first time, three weeks ago, we saw that the mind, God's wired us, he's created us in such a way that the mind is the master of the man or of the woman. We saw that when the rubber meets the road, the difference that being a Christian makes is that we have this miracle mindset that's now available to us that can transform our lives. We saw how the government of your life can rest on his shoulders as you make live contact with him. That it doesn't have to do with your works, it has to do with your thoughts. 
We saw that while we're not sanctified by our works, we are sanctified, you might say, by our thoughts. Or better, by the power of his spirit through our thoughts. Because it's through our minds that we can now plug into him who can make a miracle of our lives. We saw why we can do this. And how we can do this. Why can we do it? Well, we've been set free, if you remember. We're no longer bound to the old man, but married to another, united with Christ. How can we do it? Well, this is so fundamental to everything, to everything from our doctrine, to our mission, to, as we saw four weeks ago, to our nation, to our whole civilization, that we're going to let the same scriptures sink in once again today, and then we'll take some more time to see different ways that this mindset works out in practice, how we actually do it, to know and show the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ. So listen, listen carefully as once again, we set our minds on some truths that can transform. Romans 8, starting in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. That is, it's the whole Christian life. The wellspring of everything, the mind set on the spirit, is life, and it brings such peace when you do it. Because, verse 7, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, the opposite of peace. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In these verses, Paul's giving us a negative example of the application. And the application is this. Don't get into fleshly thinking at all costs like so many do. For you are not in the flesh any longer, verse 9. That is, who you really are is no longer in the flesh, bound to the flesh, because you've been divorced from the flesh, so you don't have to set your mind on the flesh. You have a choice. It's no longer like this mind meld with the old man in you. You have a choice because you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, which he does if you're a Christian. The same one who raised Christ from the dead is now our uh, resource for living to raise us. And so now, while those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. That's the difference. So here it is, the ultimate application of this teaching. We tap into uh, the resource of the Savior. We plug into his power. We make live contact with his spirit, the spirit uh, of the living God, by setting our minds on the things of the spirit and not on the things of the flesh. On the truths of the spirit, not on the, 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 the trash of the flesh. Your mind is hardwired to your life. And so it all turns on master control because you've got a switch now. And now you can choose who you plug into, that fleshly, you know, old geezer in you or the savior who's now in you. 
And then Paul concludes in verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That is, it's a living death like it was for Paul in Romans 7 when we get back into that kind of thinking and living. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You will live the victorious Christian life. Combining this with verse five, as we saw last time, you put to death the deeds of the flesh by putting to death the thoughts of the flesh, uh, which are the seeds of the deeds. And so boiling it all down, the secret of self-government, the secret of sanctification upon uh, which rests societal governance by the people, as we saw two weeks ago from our founding fathers, the wellspring of everything is to put to death the thoughts of the flesh and to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. While we're not sanctified by our works, we are sanctified by our thoughts, or better, by the power of the Spirit of God through our thoughts, not by our doing, but by truth in thinking. And that results in the right doing. Because it's through our minds that we plug into him who can then go on incrementally but inexorably to make a miracle of our lives. So we unpacked this teaching in Romans 8 itself three weeks ago Then, as we launched this series. And then we looked at this teaching contextually at how it's all through Scripture. From the Old Testament, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, Proverbs 23, 7. All through the Old Testament to the New Testament that we be transformed, like Paul says in Romans 12, 2, by the renewing of our minds. It's all over the place. And then we asked, what does it mean? We saw what it means contextually, how it's reinforced all through the Bible. Then we asked, what does it mean specifically? Just what does it mean to set our minds on the things of the Spirit? Exactly what are we to think about? And we saw that this is reflected all through Scripture as well. So important is it? And it's all summed up by the fact that he's the Spirit of truth. And so of all the things of the Spirit, of all that the things of the Spirit might include, they at least include at their very heart the truths of the Spirit. And of all the true, that the truths of the Spirit might include, they at least include at their very heart the truths of the Word. Christ makes this very clear in his high priestly prayer. In fact, he condensed this teaching here in Romans 8, which is a bit complicated, into very simple five words, which is what he would do again and again. Brilliant teacher. This idea that our thought is uh, the secret uh, of our walk. It's in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, the very end of his ministry where he packed in the most important things, where he says uh, five words, sanctify them in the, what? Truth. Secret of sanctification. Because it's the truth that transforms us. And then he tells us what to focus on when it comes to the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And so putting it all together, what Paul's saying is this. By coining this phrase, the things of the Spirit, in Romans 8, 
if we let the scripture interpret the scripture, he's saying you need the word and the spirit to grow up. You need not just the letter of the word, but the uh, illumination of the spirit. It's like someone said, if you have the word, you may have heard this, without the spirit, if you have the word without the spirit, you'll dry up. If you have the spirit without the word, you'll blow up. But if you have the word and the spirit, you'll grow up. Let me say that again. Paul sums this up by calling us to set our minds, not just on the teachings of the Bible, but as we do that, on the promptings, the illuminations of the spirit. And he did this because he knew the Pharisees uh, of his day. And they're no different than the Pharisees of our day. It's like the great devotional writer A.W. Tozer wrote in a book he wrote called The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, it may shock some readers to suggest that there is a difference between being Bible taught and being spirit taught. Nevertheless, it is so. It is altogether possible to be instructed in the rudiments of the faith and then still have no real understanding of the whole thing. And it is possible to go on to become an expert in Bible doctrine and not have spiritual uh, illumination, with the result that a veil remains over a very large head. The religion of these people is wholly mechanical and altogether lacking in radiance. Many of them are pathetically serious about it all and simply blind. Why? Well, because you need the word and the spirit to grow up. And if you're intellectually oriented like me, if you're in a church of engineers, like Jim talked about two weeks ago, maybe especially we need to work on this. So how do you do it? How do you turn the things of the word into the things of the spirit? How do they become the truths of the spirit but that, that don't, don't just fill our minds but real, really change our lives in the true knowledge of God as we seek to know the enduring truth? and love of Jesus Christ. There are so many facets to this, but Paul's overarching uh, focus here in Romans 7 and 8 is on the priority of repentance as the source of the Spirit's fullness, the sine qua non, the without which you won't have it. And so in chapter 7, you've got Paul's repentance. On and on he went until he said, O wretched man that I am, and in chapter 8, you get the Spirit's fullness. And the two chapters are inexorably linked. And he carries on the theme of repentance into chapter 8, as we saw last time, because at the heart of what he says to do in chapter 8 is to put to death the wicked thoughts and deeds that he talked about in chapter 7, to repent of them, of the things that quench the Spirit's fullness. There's a whole lot more here about repentance as foundation. And again, you put to death the deeds of the flesh by putting to death the thoughts of the flesh, which are the seeds of the deeds, by repenting of them, and putting them away from you. Which is why Paul went on to say in Romans 13, 14, we're to take no thought of the flesh in regard to its lust because it's downhill from there. The point is this, when those fleshly thoughts surface, we're to put them to death as though they were deeds before they become deeds. 
Repent of your thoughts or you'll soon be repenting of your deeds. Because that's where wicked words and deeds come from. And we have this on good authority. In Matthew 15, 19, Christ says, out of the heart come evil thoughts. That's where it all begins. And, and, and what do evil thoughts turn into? Next word, out of the heart come evil thoughts. And he goes immediately to actions. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, evil deeds. And then false witnesses and slanders, evil words. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You gotta treat every thought as though it's as good as done if you let yourself think it one more time. Because it goes from dirty thinking to dirty speaking to dirty living. Just like the famous saying, so a thought, sow a thought and you reap an act. So an act and you reap a habit. So a habit and you reap a character. So a character and you reap your destiny. Now, putting the cookies on the lowest shelf, and here's how you actually do it, or one way of approaching it. In the school of, here's how you do it in the school of sanctification. <clears throat> in that school, putting fleshly thoughts to death means that you practice what I like to call the three R's. Not reading, writing, and arithmetic, but the three R's of the school of sanctification. You recognize those thoughts. Don't just go on autopilot. You recognize them, you repent of them, and then you replace them with the truth, as we'll see in a bit. You recognize them, you repent of them, and then you replace them. We'll see how this works out in practice, but overall, what this means is this. Unlike the Pharisees, you clean out the inside of the cup. That's where your faith begins. Pharisaical Christians don't put much to death on the inside. They're on autopilot. They're oblivious. And so they become like whitewashed tombs. And it stinks to high heaven to everyone but themselves. And that's happening to the church in America. They don't, they don't internalize God's word uh, like Paul says here that we've got to. Like Paul himself did all through Romans 7, the wretchedness of, of all the ways in which he wasn't fulfilling the law that led to his fullness. Paul's focus here is on taking God's word from the head to the most intimate reaches of your heart, on internalizing the word to what's really going on inside you. Because as much as anything else, that's what the word of God is for. Not just to give us big heads. No, it's alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. Why? To judge deep down the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. When it comes to fleshly thoughts, you don't entertain them. You don't play with them. You don't harbor them. You put them to death as though they were deeds before they become deeds, before they become hurtful words or hateful or prideful attitudes or wicked deeds. As Christ said, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. And you see slanders from Christians all over the internet, including Facebook. Remember the keep your lousy jack story? 
Suppose nobody comes to the door. Suppose they don't have a jack. Suppose they won't lend me their jack, even if they have one. And before you know it, there's a fist in the face. Keep your lousy jack. All that trashy thinking led to trash talking and trashing someone else. At first, those thoughts may come without your permission. But if you think about it, it's kind of like taking the second look at something that you really shouldn't see. You can't help the first look when something maybe pops up on the screen of your computer out of nowhere. But you can help the second look. Sometimes you can't help the first thought, but, you, but, but don't take the second thought. You put it to death, whatever that fleshly thought may be. Become a student of your thoughts. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's kind of an amusing argument that he's having with his body. He's pointing the finger at his body when it comes to the source of his sin. You are always dragging me down, said I to my body. Dragging you down, replied my body. Well, I like that. Who taught me to, ty- to like t- tobacco and alcohol? You, of course, with your idiotic adolescent thoughts of wanting to look grown up. I hated them at first, but you would have your way. Who put an end to all those angry and revengeful thoughts last night? Me, of course, by insisting on going to sleep. Who does his best to keep you from talking too much and eating too much by giving you dry throats and headaches and indigestion? Huh? Well, what about sex, said I. Yes, what about it, retorted my body. If you and your wretched imagination would leave me alone, I'd give you no trouble. You and your thought life, you give me orders, and this sums up the whole thing that we've been talking about. You give me orders and then blame me for carrying them out. We let our minds get away with murder. And then we wonder, you know, why we don't love people or a certain person like we're supposed to. We can be so judgmental in our thinking, so resentful, so lustful. Your thoughts will get away with murder unless you murder them first. That's that's the teaching here which is precisely what Paul teaches, unless you put them to death. More than anything that's around us, the battlefield is within us. It's monkey think, monkey do, because your thoughts energize you for better or worse. little experiment I did proved it years ago. I, I, a while back, I was having a, a hard time getting to sleep at night. Uh, counting sheep did not work. And so out of the blue, I, I, started to, I decided to start counting my thoughts. I realized I couldn't sleep because these ideas would percolate up like these little bubbles of energy. You know how that is? And if I let them, they would burst into my consciousness and, and stimulate my mind. You know, worries, fears, frustrations, problems, anxieties, paranoias. And so rather than thinking about them, I started to reject them. 
and to, to count them as I did. Problem was, they kept coming back, of course. The first night, it took about 90 rejections before I got to sleep. Second night, it was 80. Third night, around 60. But eventually, I was asleep after just a few rejections. And then it occurred to me, there's a lesson there. The same bubbles of energy, the same energizing thoughts that keep me from going to sleep at night keep me from doing the will of God during the day by energizing my flesh. The grudges I nurse, the fears I entertain, the anger I cultivate. What does it look like when the rubber meets the road? Well, my mother put it this way in an article that she wrote years ago. The spiritual battlefield is within us. The article's titled, Taking Action Against the Enemy. The spiritual battlefield is within us, in our hearts and minds. Years ago, I started using an approach that helps with my inner battles, whether they come as uh, subtle temptations or traumatic struggles. It's based on 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, where Paul speaks of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You can remember this plan through an acrostic that I like to use, A-C-T. Mine are the three R's, she uses A-C-T. A-C-T gives you an on-the-spot way to take your shield of faith and your mighty sword, your main weapons when you're in the thick of the battle. Here's the approach in a nutshell. A, acknowledge. Acknowledge what you are thinking that gives Satan an advantage, that fits in with his purposes. Acknowledge also the feelings that come with these thoughts. To cast something down, we must first acknowledge it's there and not be on autopilot. Confess, uh, con confess sin if you have welcomed and fed these thoughts. As time permits, pour out your heart to the Lord, letting him in on the way you feel. Let them drive you to him. So A, acknowledge. C, choose. Choose against these false, negative, or impure thoughts. And choose not to drain your inner strength by nurturing the disrupting feelings that accompany these thoughts. Make this a decisive choice. Shout it to yourself if necessary. This is not the way I'm going to think. A, acknowledge. C, choose. T, Think. Think the truth with thanksgiving. Replace those thoughts. This brings your thoughts under Christ's authority. Have in mind ahead of time a specific truth, a specific scripture that will work for each battle that is common in your thought life. If the false or troubling thought has played over and over in your mind like a broken record, you may need, it may take time, you may need to create a new thought pattern by thinking the truth over and over, day after day, sometimes year after year. Some years ago, Warren and I were on a two-month ministry trip to India. Early one morning, I woke up overwhelmed by anxiety about a friend and a co-laborer. I'll call her name Joan. She was facing intense discouragement. Behind my anxiety lurked the thought, Joan's battle depends on me, and there's little I can do. I'm afraid the situation will disable her in a serious way. I knew my anxiety was from Satan, uh, 
or my ally, his ally within me, the beast. And that I couldn't afford to let it drain my energy as the hours went by. There was too much ministry to do. So I decided to ACT. I acknowledged my anxiety to the Lord and chose not to let it dominate my thoughts. The truth that the Lord used to dispel it was from Isaiah 42, 4 and 13. He will not fail or be discouraged. He will prevail. I began to think this truth, thanking and praising the Lord for it, taking up the shield of faith and using the spirit's sword, won the battle in my own life and helped me pray in confidence for Joan. Notice she said, sometimes those thoughts keep coming back. Anxiety was her thorn in the flesh. And it's mine too in many ways. And often she felt what a lot of us feel, what I often have felt, that sometimes it seems like it's doing no good and that it's taken so long. Those patterns of dirty thinking just keep coming back. Especially if we've been cultivating those patterns of thinking over the years. Uh, especially if they come, go way back to some childhood trauma, like for me when my dad died. It's the law of the harvest. Old habits die slowly. The one who sows to his own flesh, Galatians 6, 8, shall from the flesh reap corruption. It takes time. So take heart, once you stop sowing a bad thought habit in a posture of repentance, it takes time to stop reaping that bad thought habit that you've been sowing to for so long. Once you start sowing to the Spirit, you'll still reap from the flesh. But don't let that discourage you. In fact, that's what Paul tells us to expect in our passage for today. One more thing about the passage. That's why when he says that we're to set our minds on the things of the Spirit in Romans 8, he uses a verb that's in the present continuative sense, which in the Greek means it's got to be a continuing action. He means that we're to keep on setting our minds on the right things. That's why putting to death is also in the present continuative sense in Romans 8, because it's got to be an ongoing practice, inch by inch. Thought by thought, Paul says we're to claw our territory back. We're to take every thought captive. It takes time to be incarnational. But don't let this discourage you. Because the deeper things, the better things, are hard won. It's a battle. And we're talking here about the best things. To know the truth and love of Jesus Christ is richly relational, as Jim taught. It's deeply foundational, as Jeff taught. And today, it's highly transformational. Uh, It's incarnational. It's all these things and all such things, the deepest things, the, the richest things, the best things happen in an incremental way. It's like my father would say, that being a Christian, unfortunately, means... One big yes and a million little uh uh-huh's. So you may be thinking, I've been doing it for years now, and I don't notice that big a difference. I've been doing this for a long time. What good has it done? Well, let me just close with this. When I first entered ministry about 40 years ago now, I remember feeling 
not up to the test for a lot of reasons. I was not talkative enough as a pastor, not sociable enough, not the life of the party enough. On and on it went. I was a reluctant convert when it came to my calling in life. And it was a thorn in my flesh for many years. In the face of all the relational, you know, demands of the pastorate, I felt very selfish because I'd really rather just be by myself. So I'm a hypocrite. So hypocritical. I was constantly fighting my selfishness, putting it to death, putting on love. I've been working on my mother's suggestion for a long time, the acts of sanctification, acknowledging, choosing, uh, thinking the truth. I even put it into my own language, practicing the three R's, recognizing, repenting, replacing. I've been saturating myself with God's word, but to what effect? I felt so dark and selfish and so private on the inside. That was in 1983, just a year after we entered the ministry. I was thinking, you know, why didn't, why didn't I go into teaching or, or painting or basket weaving or anything but this, this total immersion experience in, in relating to other people? About the t- that time, Julie and I had dinner with another couple who was so providential, timed perfectly, who had come down... Uh, to town and wanted to see us. The wife, her name was Connie McIntosh, was in college with me eight years earlier at Iowa State University. And halfway through the meal, out of the blue, she looked at me and she said this. She said, and I wrote it down afterwards, Brian, I need to tell you something. You are a different person. You were such a wallflower back at Iowa State. There was a cloud over you. You're always off in the distance by yourself. And now you're so concerned about other people and so interesting to talk to, and you're, you're happy. And I'm thinking, I don't feel that happy. Does she need glasses? Or maybe she's wearing rose-colored contacts. No, I needed glasses. That's what Julie told me after she and I talked about it afterwards. Because God does bring to completion the good work that he's begun. Slow but sure. Incrementally, yes, but inexorably, yes. In a way that's richly transformational and highly relational and deeply foundational in league with his spirit, with the word that does not return void as we seek to know the truth and love of Jesus Christ. And now, 47 years later, After Connie McIntosh first saw me at Iowa State, lurking around the fringes of the fellowship. I don't struggle like that any longer. It's nothing short of a miracle. I still have a ways to go in other areas. Just talk to Julie. But I can say with complete confidence, as many of you can too, that if his spirit, is in you, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, he's raising you to incrementally but inexorably as we press on to the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, to the prize of becoming wholly like him in a blaze of glory. He's raising you too. If he can do it with me, he can do it with you. He has done it with so many of you, so keep it up. And you'll be saying with Paul in this passage and with me and with a whole lot of others in this congregation, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ.
you want to pursue this further, I'd recommend one of three books, if not all three. It's foundational to our mission, so it's really good to get into it. It's foundational to Scripture. The first is a classic that you've probably heard of by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Uh, the second is another classic called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. That's what I quoted from earlier about being spirit-taught. And then the third one I'd recommend uh, just came out last year by Tony Evans. It's much simpler but very powerful called The Power of Knowing God. It's the wellspring of everything as we seek to know and show the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ. Well, maybe not coincidentally, we come today to the greatest demonstration of the love of Christ, and that is our celebration of the uh, cross of Christ. <clears throat> it's where, at communion, in a posture of repentance, we come to know his unconditional acceptance who died for us, the unconditional acceptance because of the blood that was shed. Father, we pray that you would now make these truths real to our hearts. And I pray now with Paul, just as Jim reminded us two weeks ago, that you would strengthen us as we behold the cross and confess our sins. Strengthen us with power through your spirit who is in our inner man. Strengthen us that we might come to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge as the wellspring of everything that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.